Have you heard about the Bitcoin ETFs being approved in the US? Wondering what an ETF is? Maybe you're wondering what this means and why it matters. ETFs are a casual way for investors to own something without having to actually own it themselves. Bitcoin ETFs have existed in Canada for years, but the U.S. is a much bigger market, and the opportunity to invest in Bitcoin in the U.S. in this way is new as of January. As of January 10th, most of the largest asset managers in the world are offering Bitcoin ETFs to their customers. You're listening to The Block Reward, the show where we help you understand Bitcoin without having to be obsessed with it. I'm Scott Deedles, I'm the founder and CEO of Block Rewards, Part of our mission in bringing Bitcoin to the workplace is helping people understand how we'll help them. So if you're interested to learn more about ETFs and what the Bitcoin ETFs mean for Bitcoin and for investing in general, and stick around because we're about to dive into it. Our guest this week is Mike Willis. Mike has 25 years working in Wall Street and currently he is the CEO, co-founder and lead portfolio manager for Cyber Hornet ETFs which are a newly launched and innovative solution to mainstream investing in Bitcoin. Mike's an expert on exchange-traded funds, and he has a great way of explaining them in a way that will make sense for you as a listener, regardless of your background in financial markets. Most importantly, Mike is passionate about Bitcoin and his mission to help mainstream investors understand it and think about how to include it in their own financial plans. He's a good friend of mine and somebody who I learn a lot from every time I talk to him. I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Very special episode today. It is January 11th, we're recording this. And just yesterday, the SEC has uh, approved all of the applications for spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds. So in today's episode, we're gonna be doing a deep dive with an expert on the subject, Mike Willis. Mike. Welcome to the Block Reward. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Historic day. The new financial superstructure changing on Wall Street. So super exciting day. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's huge. And you guys are playing a very important role and a very exciting role in this. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show. But before we get into it, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I traded my way through grad school. I uh, got my MBA in finance, spent uh, the last 30 years in Wall Street-related positions, and worked for Smith Barney, Payne Weber, a lot of the wirehouses, started my own registered investment advisor, then started my own registered investment company, which is a mutual fund company. Traded as an alpha manager, which means we tried to beat the S&P 500, and realized about 10 years ago that the, the S&P 500 is, is unbeatable in general. And uh, over long periods of time, it's why the Buffett, Warren Buffett has a, an open standing $1 million bet to any hedge fund over a 10-year period. And that's the key part. We beat the S&P 500, I think, seven years before it started to beat us and then crush us. So we got excited about the whole index space uh, 10 years ago, went out and got the index ticker symbol. And then started getting excited about the digital space with Bitcoin about five years ago. And we can go into that in a minute. But right now, where we set is we're launching uh, a set of Cyber Hornet ETFs uh, that are Bitcoin related. And so we've stayed on Wall Street. Our goal is to try to bridge Wall Street to Bitcoin. And our heart is with the Bitcoin community. However, we are in a unique position where we know the compliance side, we know the SEC side of Wall Street. And so we've, we've opted to stay on at Wall Street uh, for this transition period and see if we can get 10 million Bitcoiners through the, the Wall Street distribution channel of ETFs. So 
historic day. Thank you for picking today for the day to do this because uh, we're pretty excited over here. So before we get into talking about ETFs and the ETF market, I'm just going to start with asking the same question I ask every week to start it. Tell me uh, to you, Mike, what what is Bitcoin? Oh, yeah, that's an easy one. Bitcoin is freedom money. You know, Bitcoin is is better engineered currency than anything else that's on the market right now. It's the first citizen-sponsored currency in a, in a millennia, or, or how, you know, I don't think we, we know our true history, uh, but at least in, in, uh, in, in memory, in recorded history, you know, there hasn't been anything like this. And so it's super exciting. It, you know, you, we started out with, with shells and rocks, with money. And then we, we went to uh, gold and silver. We went to paper fiat system and we're in the digital era. So, you know, Bitcoin is digital money and, and this evolution was inevitable. The exciting part is how this came about with Satoshi Nakamoto and the Immaculate Conception is, you know, epic, epic. And it, it was life-changing for me as I studied money my whole life. And, and all of a sudden, uh, this gift comes onto the market and and for us, at a minimum, Bitcoin is competition to the current government monopoly hold that they have on on the money system. And that's exciting in and of itself. Software eating money. How did you what was your orange pill story? How did, how did you discover Bitcoin? OK, so because I've been a trader for 30 years, as soon as Bitcoin hit the market, literally in 2009, I had it as a screen, an open screen on my one of my three screens that I, I traded with from day one, just because it was interesting, it was new, and I wanted to watch it. So I saw it go from one to 50, 50 to 100, 100 to 300, back down. I watched it break through a thousand. I never bought it because growing up on Wall Street, you get brainwashed to traditional asset allocation. You get brainwashed to the financial system. And so there was a lot of negative Bitcoin press in the Wall Street community from the beginning. And that didn't keep me away from it. But my thinking at the time was, if a coder could create a Bitcoin, then another coder could counterfeit it. And that was just my logic. So I sat there and I watched Bitcoin run, you know, for years, you know, 10, 10 years. I mean, maybe it was eight years before I, I finally came in. But I decided to do my rabbit hole dive, you know, that 100 hours you have to give Bitcoin, you know, to, to really see it. And when I did, the cryptography was so impressive that that means Bitcoin just dropped, by the way, is that the cryptography is so amazing that you begin to see how this is different from anything else that's ever hit the market. And, and I kicked myself for, for missing that first decade of Bitcoin and the movement there, because if I would have taken the time to study it back then, I would have reached the same conclusion. So it's exciting. I, I think there's levels of Bitcoin evolution in every investor's you know experience, and and it it typically goes you you get into digital, you get into Bitcoin, 
And then you start to see, you know, some of these other coins that are in the market that are are faster or better for this and that. And, and so you start to take positions in them. But as you do this deep dive and you really start to look at what what these other coins gave up to be, quote, better than Bitcoin, you it, it takes time, but it took about it took a couple of years, but realized that that Bitcoin was unique in the digital space. And so ended up selling all of those coins, going back to Bitcoin as being the one investment that I hold in the digital world. So I think investors, Bitcoin, you know, people go from Bitcoin curious to owning some Bitcoin to increasing their exposure. They're waiting to Bitcoin to 10 or 20%. And then I think at some point, if you do the full rabbit hole deep dive, you know, you, you become a Bitcoiner. And then beyond that is a Bitcoin maxi and beyond that is, is religious, right? It's a religion. And there's this utopian state of Bitcoiners that um, is pretty cool. And, and, and I, I definitely have definitely one of those top levels at this point. Yeah, there's a hilarious ongoing meme right now that definitely applies to me. That's something like if you even own a single chair you're you're not bullish enough on Bitcoin. Like you you haven't yet sold everything <laughs> you own. I, I'm close. I but I I do still have a chair or two. So I guess I <laughs> I have some ways to go. It's funny you mentioned about the code because it is true. You know, like people who haven't really looked closely at Bitcoin, you know, want to believe that it's vaporware, but it it's so sophisticated and the the math uh, the math behind it as well. It's almost hard to imagine that a human being invented it or discovered it, created it. And yeah, there there are people who even think that, you know, Bitcoin could be some kind of like alien technology or or who who knows what. But it, yeah, it's it's quite something. The de- the deeper you the deeper down the rabbit hole you dive. Let's so get let's transition a little bit and and talk about the the exchange traded funds, ETFs. And and so for our listeners who who aren't Wall Street bust to catch up. Um, maybe, maybe just give us a little bit of a, the 101 on what an exchange-traded fund is. You bet. So for the last 100 years, you uh, had to go through a, a stockbroker on Wall Street to buy, buy and sell stocks. There really wasn't a good, the internet didn't exist initially, and so you couldn't just pull up companies and, and research them. You had to have your stockbroker do that. And and so over the years, stockbrokers, you know, had a lot of power in that regard. They were the, uh, the source of information and even quotes. Then as the internet came on the scene, information, you know, started becoming ubiquitous and people started doing their own research. But even before that, investors realized that, that they didn't want to assemble their 20 companies or they didn't trust their their stockbroker to assemble their portfolio of 40 companies and so mutual funds came onto the scene of essentially a one ticker way to own a whole portfolio of uh that was managed by a professional and you didn't have to know them personally and these professional money managers were typically uh, a higher you know higher level than your stockbroker so it uh, gave you access to Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett and people like that and so in one ticker symbol, you could own a hundred plus uh, stocks of some some alpha managers' uh, best best ideas. And so mutual funds, though, only trade once per day. So everyone at the end of the day gets what's called an NAV, a net asset value price. They're good long term instruments, and they became very helpful to investors. 
A couple decades ago, though, uh, SPY, first ETF to hit the market, happens to be an S&P 500 index fund. And it was the first exchange-traded fund which allowed you to list this mutual fund on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. So it trades like a stock. And the main difference between an ETF and a mutual fund is that it trades all day long, still closes out with one NAV at the end of the day. Uh, but these these traders during the day will trade it like Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch will trade it and make, they'll make a bid and ask in your in your mutual fund. And then they'll, re- they'll rectify books with with you, the, the mutual fund sponsor, the ETF sponsor at the end of the day. So technically, they still only have one NEV, but investors are able to trade it all day long. And the benefit is that the ETF distribution system is unreal because a lot of places you can buy ETFs for free. They're immediately listed. Uh, we, we listed on the NASDAQ a couple of weeks ago. We're on most platforms already with that ETF. That's unheard of uh, with a mutual fund. You have to go to every individual uh, platform, company, you know, Robinhood or whoever, and sign a, a dealer agreement with them, negotiate a fee structure. And then a lot of times they charge you an arm and a leg to get listed on their platform. So ETFs are amazing uh, from a distribution standpoint because it's the most efficient distribution rails in the world, in my opinion. It's like listing on NASDAQ, an ETF on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange is like getting into getting your product into Target, Walmart, and every major um, chain, uh, Costco, you know, chain in, in America in, in one, you know, one day. So that's what an ETF is. And maybe one more. It's, it's a term we'll probably hear a few times over the course of the episode. So what is the S&P 500? So the S&P 500, in the beginning, managers, you, you hired a manager, an alpha manager, alpha meaning they, they, want to, they want to create alpha performance above and beyond the market. And so you're, the, the idea is you're paying this manager to buy the winners and sell the losers, right? And Jack Bogle came out 30 years ago or so or more, uh, closer to 50 actually now. And with an S&P 500 index, which was the top 500 companies in America and the largest ones by market cap. And the idea was just to own the market and to an index uh, traded with a math formula. The manager executes the math formula. The manager does not execute his own, his or her own judgment. So the S&P 500 are 500 of the largest companies chosen by Standard & Poor's in one index. And as an asset manager, you just track the index. You just standard and fours moves out about two to four positions a month inside the the five hundred, and you just track that uh, as a as an index uh, asset manager. And they're cheaper. Uh, the the fees are lower on those models. And over time, you know, over the last twenty year period, the S P five hundred index beat ninety four percent of all managers in the large cap arena. So very effective. Uh, the fun part is they're cheap. Uh, they're cheaper than, than the actively managed and the outperform. So a lot of people have become Bogleheads, uh, Jack Bogle's last name, Bogleheads, and excited about how they can, the S&P 500 actually beats their brokers. And when we, uh, when we looked at the market, uh, it took me 20 years to realize this, but the apex predator asset of Wall Street is the S&P 500 index. 
just like in the digital space, we believe Bitcoin is the apex predator asset. We we actually believe you don't need anything more than the S&P 500 index if you're trying to trade stocks on Wall Street. Conversely, we also believe you only need Bitcoin if you're trying to track the digital space for new digital coins. So the S&P 500 is kind of strategic in our, in our minds because we don't think you have to be an expert to trade stocks on Wall Street. You, you, you're going to do better. Most investors would do better off just owning the S&P 500 and calling it a day. And we think they would beat most of their brokers if they did that. Yeah, I, I'm one of the people who, who thinks you're right. And if you are, it, it, it's something that has potentially uh, huge implications for a lot of uh, people who manage money for a living. So let's, let's uh, zoom in a little bit and, and take a look at the, the specifics of these Bitcoin ETFs and, and help our listeners understand the significance of what it means. So we've, we've talked about what an ETF is. So, so what is a Bitcoin ETF? So five years ago, Bitcoin futures were allowed to trade through the Chicago Board of Exchange to what's called CME futures contracts. And Bitcoin futures for the first time, you know, anybody who was in Bitcoin can remember a run up that we had at the end of the year that year, right before Bitcoin was approved to trade on the Chicago Board of Exchange and Futures. And it hit $20,000 on that day and then, you know, went into a bear cycle right after that. And people have a lot of, a lot of comments on, on what they think really happened there. But essentially, Bitcoin futures have been trading on Wall Street uh, for the last five years, uh, five or six years. And, but Bitcoin spot ETFs have not. In other words, if you wanted to own the actual underlying commodity, in this case, a digital commodity, Bitcoin, those spot ETFs were not approved by the SEC inside of a, to be listed on an exchange in, in the United States until yesterday. So today is actually the first day of trading for these spot Bitcoin ETFs. And the difference between a spot Bitcoin ETF and a futures based, the futures uh, is a security. You know, nobody can steal that thing and, and run away with it. Uh, there's some advantages to spot because you own the underlying Bitcoin, but you also have to custody that the, the underlying Bitcoin. So these, these big financial institutions have to figure out a way to custody that Bitcoin asset. Just like if you had a gold ETF, that was based on futures. You still track the price of gold, but you own the futures, the a paper version of gold. Whereas a spot gold ETF, they're required to actually own the physical gold somewhere. And so they have to find a custodian for it and they have to pay those custodian fees and they have to protect that gold from being stolen. So yeah, so so it's like the difference between, say, or, so what an ETF manager does, I guess, is they they take people's money and and they buy Bitcoin with that money and, and they get paid a small fee to do that. And and what you're saying is with that comes the responsibility, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, whatever the underlying asset is, that asset manager is responsible for for actually owning the asset that on behalf of the customers who are using it as a, as an investment vehicle. Yeah. And it's it's bigger than that, too, Scott, because. There's no, it's Bitcoin in a QCIP, right? When you get Bitcoin inside of an ETF, it gets a QCIP. What a QCIP means is your, your account at Charles Schwab can now buy it. You, you don't have to figure out what a digital wallet is. Up until now, you had to go figure out what a digital wallet is. You had to start learning about public and private keys. It sounds great to have a Swiss bank account in your 
your pocket and you you don't need a bank in between you and your money because I, I'm a proponent of a bankless nation. But there is no 800 number to call if you send your Bitcoin to the wrong address. And I think when you look at Wall Street, let's just say there's $100 trillion on Wall Street, two, $2 trillion came over to the crypto world, two per, about 2% of Wall Street were first adopters, first movers into the space. But the vast majority of traditional investors have stayed on Wall Street, you know, 98% or even if you just want to call it 95%, but it's closer to 98% have stayed there. So allowing, putting Bitcoin in a QSIP allows it to be accessed by every, in, in traditional accounts all over Wall Street, you know, all over in all 50 states. And that's the key here is we just opened the funnel up to to a very wide audience. And up until today, the the first step into Bitcoin, in our opinion, was too wide. You know, most invest traditional investors aren't going to try to figure out a digital wallet. The scariness of figuring out public and private keys and and trying to get to cold storage. These are all very advanced features for even um, hardcore Bitcoiners, let alone, you know, your mom and dad or, or just somebody on Wall Street that has a Schwab account and wants to try to you know, put $100,000 in Bitcoin. So owning Bitcoin has its pros and, uh, and owning the ETF has its pros. Maybe just give us your take on on what are the benefits of, of actually owning Bitcoin yourself and, and what would be the alternative benefits of, of choosing to own the ETF instead? So I think you walk down this path of purity, right? And I think the purity, the pure play here is to own Bitcoin in cold storage. That's your pure play because Bitcoin was designed to be decentralized money. You don't need a bank. Don't trust a middleman. It's, it's trustless money, which is um, amazing. It's decentralized. You don't need a centralized exchange or a centralized bank to transact the Bitcoin on your behalf. The whole point of it is, is, is you want to create a trustless form of currency that's decentralized. So it's not centralized. So the pure play is to figure out how to own your own Bitcoin and not even in a digital wallet, in a cold storage uh, venue. And I think that's that's the ultimate objective here. However, now let's walk back from the pure play. It is much, much easier not to, to hold your Bitcoin in cold storage. I have to say, I still, as, as much of a Bitcoiner, Bitcoiner as I am, I just bought some Bitcoin on Coinbase. and. I didn't move it to cold storage immediately. So their their practicality here is that, and, and I know a lot of Bitcoiners and some big names that are on podcasts all the time, they still have their coins on exchanges. And, and so then you take a step further toward you know just traditional investors. Your traditional, traditional investors don't even want to try to figure out how to open a, an account on Coinbase because they're already at Schwab or Merrill or wherever they're at. So now, if they can have access to Bitcoin through their Schwab account, that's how it's going to happen. You know, that's how the wide adoption. We think the the mass retail adoption of Bitcoin will only happen through the ETF 
superstructure, which which as of today is just started the Bitcoin era on Wall Street literally started to, starts today. And so it's exciting, you know, so where you are in that scale, you know, if you if you're fine just holding it in an ETF and letting somebody else worry about custodying those assets on your behalf, but you get to keep it in your your same traditional brokerage account, well, then the ETFs are for you. As you get more educated and you're like, you know, I'm not, um, I, I'd rather have a little bit more control over my keys, my, my public and private keys, then you can start to move down that scale to more of the purity side of what Bitcoin was originally designed for. But in our minds, what's exciting about this is everyone, every investor that owns a Bitcoin ETF, no matter how it's structured, it can be futures or spot, if Bitcoin's up 40, if they're up 40% in their ETF and some congressman comes out with a bill to limit the use of, of Bitcoin in America, you've got a Bitcoin advocate, you've got a Bitcoin voter in that, in that investor because he's like, what are you talking about? So for us, the fastest path, you know, Corey up Clipston said that, you know, win the race to adoption to avoid the war. You know, he wrote that a while back and came up with an idea that you needed 10 million Bitcoiners to really uh, tip the scale. And we think ETS are the only way you can, you can get to that 10 million Bitcoiners, you know, any, but before legislation starts to restrict and outlaw Bitcoin. Because we do, the US dollar is the global reserve currency, and there's the status quo is uncomfortable, let's just say, with having a competitor in the market that threatens their government money monopoly. And so the faster we we get retail adoption in our minds and our views, the better. It's one really interesting development that's happened with the approval of the ETFs is companies advertising their ETF products. And I saw one this morning, uh, one of the uh, one of the ETFs is from a company called Van Eck. And in in their ad, they have explicitly said that something uh, I might not get exactly right, but it was basically Bitcoin might help you protect yourself from governments debasing the currency. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. It's going to be a very interesting era. And I do think that ETFs, like you said, potentially, in addition to um, building advocacy, are, are a great way to expose a lot of people to just the general ideas and uh, take it mainstream. There's an important distinction, I think, that might be worth talking about. And with some ETFs, where the uh, where the underlying asset is a commodity, customers are able to redeem the units for the actual thing. So this is true for some gold ETFs, where if you own the ETF, you want to cash it in, you have kind of the optionality to take it in cash or, or actually take reclaim claim the physical gold. Now, the ETFs that have been approved in the U.S. are so far are different, right? And, and my understanding is that they're all only to be redeemed for cash. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I haven't read all the prospectuses, but I did see Max Kaiser's comment on that on Twitter a, a while back, and and I'm sure it's correct. I, I'm I'm guessing it is correct for all the prospectuses, and I think that is interesting because as we move forward, I would like to see that changed. I'm I'm guessing that was an SEC thing that was part of the agreement to get these into ETFs because it would be. It'd be very cool to be able to redeem your, to, you know, pay your dividends in Bitcoin or redeem your shares in Bitcoin. That would be a very cool feature. And, and if we can get to that, you know, we'll definitely um, work on that with our ETFs. 
So I think it's there, though, because, you know, it protects the status quo and it creates a taxable event. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack with that little clause that's in the prospectus. So, you know, I was we were talking to Caitlin Long's camp, uh, Lisa, how about how their bank that's charted in Wyoming can custody Bitcoin a little more in the name of the the underlying um, investor and how it's separate uh, from the bank and it's held actually in a, a Wyoming trust structure that's in in the in the individual shareholder's name instead of Coinbase or whoever you know whatever the ETF company is and we're looking at that but the the forcing you to sell your your position. You know, I think there's the the current status quo works on taxes too, right? The IRS. And so it's not just a control issue. It's also a revenue model that I think exists. And I think that's part of that clause. What What are your thoughts on why that clause got put in? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And it's, you know, it, it would be cool if it's something that changed. But I what I think it really does is it keeps the Bitcoin on Wall Street. Uh, and, and it, it restricts uh, um, potentially a new avenue for people to buy Bitcoin or redeem Bitcoin, which just kind of adds a, a, maybe a layer of complexity that's not worth it for right now. Like I, my, my sense as, a, as an investor in a Bitcoiner is like, it's probably just more important to get these things into the market and uh and get the general public sort of investing and understanding and you mentioned lisa she's our guest next week so that's pretty exciting uh you can tune in for her um yeah uh the other thing you know i what i'd love to ask you a little bit about is so you mentioned spy the s&p 500 etf has has really you know sort of been being the star performer without without naming uh, you know i i guess they're 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 all going to have sort of individual differences but my sense is the Bitcoin ETFs have a very, very strong chance to be high-performing ETFs in terms of uh, price appreciation. Like, what, what, what's your thought for what the Bitcoin ETFs could mean for the market share of um, you know the total investable assets on Wall Street? So, in our opinion, the, the next twelve months, you're going to see more and more ETFs come to market that have. That, that are innovative strategies, non 100% pure plays. So these spot, spot Bitcoin ETFs are basically 100% Bitcoin plays. You get 100% of the upside, 100% of the downside. And I've managed money for 30 years. And, and I can tell you my experience, if you're down 40% for an investor, they're burning up your phones. If you're down 50, they're out. If you're down 60 or 70, it's potential lawsuits. So financial advisors have not gotten excited about recommending to their clients, Bitcoin to their clients, because they realize the volatility is beyond of Bitcoin is beyond most of the risk tolerances of their investors, even if they are calling them on it. Because the 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 numbers show that twenty to thirty percent of Americans are interested or have already bought and sold some Bitcoin. And they're doing it around their financial advisors right now because financial advisors traditionally have not been able to recommend it. Now that the Bitcoin spot, BlackRock Bitcoin spot was approved, Fidelity's, you know, put out all kinds of positive news on it. Larry Fink's running around doing Bitcoin roadshows, which feels like an alternate universe, you know, some sort of Mandela effect shift happened six months ago. But what we are looking at now is an environment where 
Uh, Bitcoin is being viewed as as positive, uh, potentially a new asset class on Wall Street. So we think you're going to see it being added to asset allocation portfolios over the next three years, um, maybe at 1%, 2%, 3%, just initially more aggressive portfolios. And then it's going to work its way into pension plans, maybe five to 10 years out. And if you start getting 1% to 3% in these big pension plans, and ultimately, you know, on the high side, we'd see 5%. That's a big number, right? You know, on a $100 trillion market, 5% is, is $5 trillion. And right now, Bitcoin's under $1 trillion in market cap. So that's that's a big impact. Yeah. Potentially. I, you know, and I think people maybe really haven't understood. Cause you have to be a fair, fair way down the Bitcoin rabbit hole to start to understand how Bitcoin is, is provably and absolutely finite and it's fair to say at this point, I think Bitcoin is the would the Bitcoin ETFs would be the only ETFs where the underlying thing that you could buy has a totally capped amount. Like with gold, um, gold is rare, and but as the price rises, they, they're always making or finding new gold, and, and we have no way of knowing how much gold there is to be mined. But with Bitcoin, theoretically, there is an infinite amount of money that could find its way into these ETFs. And approvably, there there is just factually only so much Bitcoin out there to be bought. So there there hasn't been a dynamic like this on a Wall Street product ever. I, is that fair to say? That's really fair to say. That's a great point. You know, rocks and shells and gold and silver. There's always discoveries of of new sources and fiat. They just turn on a printing press and and you can create new fiat. It created ten trillion dollars worth of new fiat just in the last couple of years. So, the fact that Bitcoin is is static at twenty one million is super exciting. Clearly, one of the the key features of Bitcoin, and and as you said, as as demand widens, there's potentially you know uh, a I don't know if you can say infinite, but you could say the entire uh, financial ecosystem of of let's just say earth putting its money into 21 a capped 21 million coin market and that that is super exciting and and this could get this could get pretty wild in the end people will buy the ETS because of the performance they're starting out because of curiosity and and obviously bitcoin did 157% last year so it's it's people are looking at it realizing it over the last 10 years, Bitcoin has, has returned 50% a year uh, annualized. And most asset classes on Wall Street are, you know, 2, 3, 4, 5% with the S&P 500 at the top end. You know, some are on 9, 10, 11, 12%, depending on the, the time period you're looking at. In real estate, a little above that, you know, real estate ETFs, a smidgen above that. But nobody's seeing 50% annualized return. So the new kid on the block is the highest risk return asset to hit Wall Street uh, in, in my memory. I've been doing this 30 years. So the excitement's there. But as you suggest, as performance performance will take over a year or two from now, people are going to be looking at these ETFs. And I think, uh, I think, I think it is a performance-driven market. And as the performance is achieved by these ETFs, the demand is just going to go through the, through the roof. And you've got $100 trillion minimum you know, on Wall Street waiting waiting to do something. Yeah, I mean, for people who are sort of looking at uh, um, you know, fund catalogs, 
what you know what people tend to do is they're scanning is is look at the the one year the three year the five year the ten year and yeah, just Bitcoin on its own you know kind of maybe take the one year out like you mentioned on shorter time frames the volatility is a lot for people to stomach but on longer time frames so far the performance has been um, really in a, in a class of its own be really interesting to see how that plays out um, you mentioned something there just a, a concept and. We talked about this with uh, episode 10 with Newt's Home, And if you're interested to go back and check that episode out, if you didn't listen to it, Newt's concept is everything divided by 21 million. And it's kind of the idea that eventually this thing, the, the, the more momentum and a, and a price appreciation it achieves, the more people it's going to attract. And this is sort of a positive feedback loop that ultimately results in Bitcoin kind of having a gravity that uh, allows it to swallow sort of every other financial asset that exists. So that's called hyper-Bitcoinization, and New and I had a really cool conversation about that back in November. Let's change gears, Mike. I want to talk about what you guys are doing is something super cool with one fund, Cyber Hornet ETFs. Tell me about it. So we became Bitcoiners a few years ago and got so excited about jumping into, you know, Lightning and Liquid and Blockstream and uh, setting up our nodes and and leaving Wall Street and just jumping in with a new decentralized financial superstructure that's starting to, to, to get implemented. But we saw that our knowledge of Wall Street could help. And so before we left, we decided, how can we bridge Wall Street to Bitcoin? How can we get 10 million Bitcoiners before legislation starts to restrict our, our ownership? Because, you know, in, in our opinion, the people who control wealth, they don't mind if the minions have benefit from, from different asset classes, but they don't really want them to own them. Um, to give you an example of that, um, you know, owning land as opposed to just experiencing the returns of, a, of, of property. And with Bitcoin, you can see how they, they, they don't want to restrict your ability to own it because, or, or to invest in it because people would be like, wait, this is a free country. At the same time, they really are uncomfortable, I think, with everybody having their own private keys and cold storage ownership of Bitcoin. And I think the reason ETFs were finally approved had something to do with that because they realized that the BlackRock and Fidelity would hold all the keys and I think there's clauses in all the prospectus that allow for, you know, the government, they're, they're government regulated, right? So if the government wants to shut them down, they can do it in one a blink of an eye. Whereas if everyone had Bitcoin cold storage, you know, what was your question again, Scott? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what we realized, um, we went out and got the Cyber Hornet name because uh, that, that uh, pinned tweet by Michael Saylor three years ago has really kind of stuck to the Bitcoin community. So you have the Cyber Hornet community, you have the Bogleheads, uh, Bogleheads being the S&P 500, the Zelliots on the market who have, you know, realized that, that the S&P 500 strategy outperforms most brokers. So we're just, we're there. And so we really saw an opportunity to unite the Bogleheads with the Cyber Hornet community, Bitcoin community. Went out and got that. We filed the trademark for Cyber Hornets um, and really wanted to put out a suite of ETFs that helped investors capture the whole run-up of Bitcoin. Because we, we think as great as spot ETFs are for Bitcoin, 
in the end, people are going to buy in. Traditional investors will buy in. It'll run up. They'll buy some more. And then the first time it falls 50%, we think, you know, it's just going to scare a lot of traditional investors out. They'll sell out and then Bitcoin will continue its epic run up and they'll miss, you know, they'll miss it. They might hit some highs, get some, you know, sell out at some lows. That seems to be the the, the buy high and sell low seems to be uh, par for a lot of investors that kind of get sucked in and out of the markets because fear and greed is, is you know, a, a tough a tough enemy uh, to fight when you invest and especially in a real volatile asset. So our goal was how can we... How can we buffer the downside volatility of Bitcoin so that investors can hold, they can hodl, right? I think you, you know, hodl, hold on for dear life. I think as Bitcoiners, we can hodl because we're religious about this, right? But a traditional investor down 50% is going to sell. A Bitcoiner, not so much. But I would, I would guess even if you talk to hardcore Bitcoiners, they've been selling at lows too and getting sucked back in at highs because they sold out when they got scared. If they're honest with you, they'll let you know that even they're struggling with that. So the idea behind the Cyber Hornets is we have a suite of four ETFs we want to bring to market. We just brought our first one to market a couple of weeks ago. Um, that one was a 75-25 model. So 75% S&P 500, 25% Bitcoin futures. And then we rebalance monthly. So the idea is, and then we want to come out with a 50, or one of our, our new ones would be a 50, uh, 50, 50, um, a 60, 40, and a 40, 60. Uh, so we're able to get some kick-ass ticker symbols uh, reserved with the NASDAQ. And our first one came out at ZZ, triple Z, kind of taking that off from the, uh, the Qs that are on the market. Qs next to SPY, QQQ is one of the most talked about ETFs on the market. It's the NASDAQ 100. But they call them, the traders call them the Qs. So we've got a suite of four three-letter tickers reserved at the NASDAQ for, for our ETFs. And there'll all be different percentage weightings of Bitcoin futures. And then now that spot's been approved, um, we're going to update our prospectus to allow for um, spot and futures to be held in our ETS and at our discretion of which of the two we'll use based on which one is the safest for our our investors. And we can walk through some of the determinants of that in a minute. But there, as a Bitcoiner, we wanted to go straight to spot as soon as it was approved. But I can tell you, as we started to look at the custody issues, we're starting to recognize some of the benefits of the Bitcoin futures. And so we're not just going to automatically switch everything over to spot um, but we'll, we'll adjust our prospectus to allow for it at the discretion of the manager. And then we'll make that determination here in the next, um, couple of months, how we're going to allocate the portfolios, uh, in the right way for our, our shareholders. But the basic concept is that we're introducing the new kid on the block, the highest risk return asset class to hit Wall Street in, in recent memory with the old kid in the block, the king, the S&P 500 index, the most widely held index strategy uh, on Wall Street and has a proven process and a proven proven returns that uh, are much less volatile than Bitcoin. And by the way, we're holding all 500 underlying stocks. Um, so you have that bedrock of 75% of the portfolio in those 500 companies. And then the 25% in Bitcoin futures, uh, we rebalance on a monthly basis. So if the S&P 500 during the month moves up relative to Bitcoin, 
we sell S&P high, buy Bitcoin low. If Bitcoin runs that month relative to the S&P 500, we sell Bitcoin high, buy S&P low, and bring it back to whatever the ratio of that ETF is. And right now, our first one is 75-20. So an investor can come to you guys for a sort of a one-stop shop and get this idea of they're getting all of the, t- the top performing companies in the United States and they're getting an exposure to Bitcoin and they don't have to think about constantly rebalancing the mix. And so it's, it's a super cool idea. Um, maybe to, just let's let's talk a little bit more about this idea of sort of, uh, is it right to call it volatility suppression? Or is it, you're, you're leveraging on the historical performance of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the S&P 500 to help people sort of put their toe in and benefit from the upside of Bitcoin. Tell me, like, like, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And in our competitive advantages, we're doing it with the S&P 500 index. Most, most asset managers wouldn't respond that way. And the reason is, if you have a high volatility investment like a Bitcoin that's doing this, then the way you buffer its downside vol is you bring in a, a non-vol asset class like treasuries would be non-vol. And so we think most of the models that you're going to see hit the market to protect the volatility of Bitcoin are going to be treasury-based or long-short strategies. They'll do some option call put option strategies uh, to buffer the vol- volatility of Bitcoin. We're using the S&P 500, which is really a not, not traditional thing to use a volatile, a vol asset like Standard & Poor's 500, which you know, can be up, up 20%, down 20%, or even more any given year. So traditionally, that's not a, a, a non-vol asset class to, to combine with Bitcoin. But compared to Bitcoin, the S&P 500 is, is low vol. And we, we believe it's the most trusted brand name in the market. And so for the $7 trillion of investors that are already invested in the S&P 500, but are some, a per, certain percentage are going to be Bitcoin curious, they already own the S&P 500 index. So they could either go out and buy it. Let's say they have $100,000 in their portfolio S&P 500, and they're like, hey, I want to buy some Bitcoin. You know, by $25,000. But that's going to go potentially through the moon on the upside or, you know, all the way down, depending on, you know, a, a negative outcome of Bitcoin. And so by bringing it into one portfolio strategy and combining it and doing the rebalancing, you know, we can go to a financial advisor and say, you know, by limiting the exposure to Bitcoin to 25% in this portfolio, if, if the worst case scenario happened for Bitcoin, you have a limited downside on this portfolio. Whereas if it does go to a million dollars or more and the bulls, the Bitcoin bulls are right, that same advisor can go to his clients and say, hey, I, I exposed you to the performance of Bitcoin in a very smart way and we got these accelerated returns because of it. And they're going to be very happy as clients are likely going to be very happy. But it likely wouldn't turn to a lawsuit if the Bitcoin portion of that portfolio went to zero for some reason, as opposed to if you had 100% of the portfolio in that side. And, and we, you know, as Bitcoiners, we don't see that as, as a possibility. Um, but 
you have to account for that. And as a, if you're a fiduciary on investment portfolios, you have to account for the fact that any investment you can put a client in could potentially go to zero. Tesla could go to zero. Microsoft could go to zero. Technically, they can't. Most advisors don't think they will, but technically they can. And so the risk of them going to zero is what um, these innovative strategies, Bitcoin ETF strategies are all about. And so for us, we're protecting or buffering or smoothing out the downside volatility of Bitcoin with the S&P 500. And frankly, as the S&P 500 is gaining, uh, or sorry, as Bitcoin goes through a bull cycle, the, the Bitcoin ecosystem on Wall Street will expand. And we're hoping to get a percentage of that. Uh, so we'll sell the gain. Conversely, when Bitcoin's going through a bear cycle, um, we can sell the pain because we've got, this is why we don't think most investors can handle 100% of the upside or downside of Bitcoin is because it is so volatile. So when Bitcoin does make those sharp pullbacks, we think our strategy will stand out for investors who can't handle that type of volatility. And that's a wider audience, right? Because maybe 30% of people can handle you know, massive volatility in their portfolios because they don't look at them or they're just, they have diamond hands. But on the other hand, you know, the 70% that kind of look at it and they get nervous when they're down 20%, we think they're going to get really nervous when they're down 50%. And, and you remember, when you're down 50% in Bitcoin and a bunch of articles are coming out saying Bitcoin sucks, Here's why Bitcoin can get hacked. Here's, here's possible scenarios, how it can go to zero. You're down 50% as a, an investor and you, you get scared. And that happens, you sell out and all of a sudden Bitcoin's back up. They're writing positive articles now. Everything's rosy and you're going, dang, I sold. Um, and that's just life. So we're trying to figure out a way, create innovative strategies with, that are simple and familiar to traditional investors on Wall Street to allow them to hold Bitcoin uh, over the what we think will be an epic run over the next decade. It, it is super innovative. And, uh, and I love what you guys are doing. I, I uh, While you were talking there, I, I queued up this uh, Michael Saylor um, tweet that you mentioned. And he says, Bitcoin is a swarm of cyber hornets serving the goddess of wisdom, feeding on the fire of truth, exponentially growing ever smarter, faster, and stronger behind a wall of encrypted energy. Um, I'm an unabashed Michael Saylor, bro. We talk about him a lot on the show. One of the ideas, actually, that I think is worth mentioning here is Michael Saylor's talked about the idea that uh, forget about CPI or the rate of inflation. What people should really care about is the, um, the, the expansion of the money supply. And so in the U.S., it's actually sort of around 7% historically. And so Saylor has this idea that S&P, the S&P 500 is the way to protect yourself against inflation because historically it has actually outperformed the base rate of expansion of the money supply. And in Canada, it's even worse. Uh, most people, I was shocked to find out myself, the average expansion of M2 in Canada, average over the last 40 years is 8.5%. Canadian monetary supply <laughs> expands by eight and a half percent per year. So you do need high performing assets just to stay in front of uh, how fast your money is being debased. Um, you guys got to uh, you guys got to be at NASDAQ uh, before the end of the year. You, you, you closed the day, right? Yeah, we got to ring the bell last Friday. 
Super exciting. I'll tell you what, they have a 10-story, right in Times Square, a 10-story building that has um that's fully lighted on the outside so they can you know advertise and sell advertising on it and we know those ads during peak you know peak times you know hundreds of thousands of dollars just for you know seconds up there depending on when and friday might not have been one of those peak hours but we still were only expecting maybe being up on that tower for maybe you know 15 30 seconds maybe 60 seconds you know if nasdaq was being generous but uh they rolled out the red carpet for cyber hornet etfs and and we um we got up on their tower for over an hour and they were uploading pictures of the whole ceremony you know and just kind of looped it up there um I think, you know, initially when we heard we got the close, because I was thinking we'd get the open, I'm like the close, but it actually turned out better because when you get the opening ring, you know, they, they'll show you ring, but then, you know, all the news starts happening, right? And so they cut away. But at the close, you know, everyone's going home. So we got, we literally were on Times Square in front of everyone for an hour plus and um it was super exciting they just treated us right we're definitely going to use the nasdaq the next time we ipo our next uh three etfs and so uh exciting really exciting and a lifetime goal of mine was to ring the bell at the new york stock exchange uh but super happy to have selected the nasdaq for this listing we went through a, a review process and decided the nasdaq was more tech focused it was more retail focused it's on Times Square, not downtown Wall Street, um, which is kind of synonymous with uh, insiders. And so we we chose the Nasdaq and are super happy we did, and, and it really went way beyond what we think we, what we thought they were going to do for us. That's so cool. Uh, so the first fund is out. It is ZZZ. Uh, Mike, if people want to find you online or find more out about uh, Cyber Hornets and One Fund. How do they, where can they find it? Uh, CyberHornetETFs.com. And we own every, you know, you can drop the S, add S's in there and it still all goes to the same place. Um, yeah, but we're, you know, we've got the, uh, the Bitcoin community and we're joining up. We're trying to get the Bullheads excited uh, about the, the Bitcoin community and the Cyber Hornets. And those two communities together, we think, uh, make a good pact. And, you know, Bitcoiners may look at us as um, diversifying too much. You know, with the S&P 500, why aren't you just selling Bitcoin? And, and you know, why the heck are you using Bitcoin futures or ETFs that are held by custodians hold your keys? So from a purist model, a Bitcoiner is initially uh, going to be adverse to what we're doing. But rest assured, we are we are Bitcoiners, and um, and but we see the benefit of connecting. The way you connect Wall Street to Bitcoin is you got to provide that first step, um, in in in, the, in a very simple and familiar way, and that's what we're doing uh, with the ETF structure and and bringing the S and P five hundred into the mix, combining these two giants, you know, into one ETF strategy is just uh exciting to us and um using the nasdaq to get there as our exchange super exciting 
And uh, so now we've got we've got our first product on the market. So we'll start to market that uh, coming up here. We haven't done any marketing on it quite yet, but the concept is you know to be able to own uh, or invest in uh, Bitcoin like returns and still sleep at night, catch your Z's. That was kind of the uh, idea behind ZZZ. I'm excited to watch the uh, the rest of these come out and see what happens for you guys this year and and in the years coming. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Talk next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits, supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies, and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 